Immediately following the Nakubo annual meeting, First American Education Finance invites business officers from colleges and universities across the country to gather for an evening of collaboration at their peer discussion events. The objective of these events? To share new speakers and perspectives with education colleagues and provide the opportunity to discuss relevant issues facing the education community. This year, Howard Teibel served as host to the FAEF Peer Discussion in Long Beach, California, to panel guests Bill Davies of Mount St. Mary's University, J.J. Wagner Davies of George Mason University, and Don Mathewson of University of Southern California. Together, they offered their experience and insight in building a resilient culture for the future of higher education. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for coming here. Thank, let's, let's give a warm thank you to FAEF for this wonderful event. Really fantastic. I think we have a really exciting conversation we're going to have tonight. And what, the way I want to start is give each of our panelists an opportunity to introduce themselves, say a little bit about who they are, what they do, and what was the first job that you, where you actually made some money? Oh, All that's, right? Oh. They, that's see, they don't know everything I'm going to ask them. Wow. Yeah. But right, that's just that's the way easy, it is. That's an easy one for me. So that's an easy I'm Don Matthewson. I'm the treasurer at the University of Southern California. I started my career on Wall Street in investment banking, so that's where I started to make my first bit of change. Um, that was post my Peace Corps days. So I did the Peace Corps out of college, then went to graduate school, then went to investment banking. So I suffered for a little while. Um, but then I, I went to investment banking but worked for Lehman Brothers, so I was given it and then it was taken away. So, uh, <laughs> so I did that for 10 years. Fortunately, I, I picked up with Barclays Capital after that. Spent 10 years doing investment banking and six years ago went to uh, California Institute of the Arts, which is, um, for those of you who, who know it, we have some fans in the, in the room, Maisha. Uh, it's what I consider to be the world's best art school. And I was the VP for finance and administration there for five years. And then just over a year ago, I took a job as the treasurer at the University of Southern California. Thank you very much. Thanks, Howard. Bill. Um, Bill Davies, uh, Vice President for Business and Finance, Mount St. Mary's University. Uh, my first job, the best job ever, for five years, I was a water ski instructor in the maintenance department for an all-girls sailing camp. So. <laughs> Who cares about the money? <laughs> there was a little bit of money, but that wasn't the fun. <clears throat> but uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, I was in public accounting with Coopers and Librand for 11 years. Um, then I moved on to the Hershey organization for 17 years. Uh, I was the CFO of the School and the School Trust, a uh, small $9 billion organization. Uh, it's actually for disadvantaged children, so everything there is left for disadvantaged children. Uh, and then uh, moved on to Mount St. Mary's University. So it's a small Catholic institution, liberal arts, a uh, lot of challenges, but uh, it's been very rewarding. Fantastic. So. Thank you. And JJ. Saving the best for last. Huh? Saving the best for last. <laughs> so I'm JJ. Um, let's see. Um, my first job was a lifeguard, which was fabulous. It paid well, saved a lot of lives. Um, um, <laughs> I did. It's fun. Um, so I'm a Penn State alum. I think there's some Penn State alums in the room. Woohoo! Um, so, and then my first real job post-grad school was, I was a financial analyst, uh, state budget office. So, currently a senior vice president uh, at George Mason University, 37,000 this fall strong. Oh, wow. Um, uh, and prior to that, I was at University of Delaware, and prior to that, I did a 15-year gig in state government, culminating in OMB director. Never bored. 
It's great. Never bored. Just a wealth of knowledge and experience and background. So fantastic. So just briefly about myself, uh, the work that we do is really around transformation. And, and that's, that, you know, we throw that word around a lot, but it really is coming down to more and more, in my experience in education, that we have to find a way to do three things well. And I want you guys to listen to this and think about how you show up in the space. We need to find a way to have the people around us show loyalty to not just the institution, but where we want to go. Uh, I, I was recently with a, with a bunch of AVPs. They said, I'm loyal to the institution, but I'm not loyal to my boss. It's an interesting wow. statement, right? And so that's the first thing. The second thing is how we build emotional resiliency in our, in our people. And this is an area that I've been exploring more and more. And third, ultimately, we throw around words like courage and boldness, but I think we're at a point now in education where we really have to put our money where our mouth is and to show even, I'd say, fearlessness and be willing to risk, not risk at all, but be willing to, to lead a pack because people are complacent and they often are afraid to step in and they need leaders to step up. So, um, so that's the work that we do in helping teams around that through this. Let's just do a quick poll in the room, show of hands. Raise your hands for our benefit if you come from a large research institution. Okay, cool, thank you. What about a small private? Small privates, excellent. Uh, anyone, are you in the, you, the designated category of what we'd call regional comprehensive universities? Anyone in that space? Thank you. Uh, community colleges. <laughs> you got it. And, and, and again, this might be an overlap with the small privates, but designations as a denominational school. A small denominational, thank you. Um, any academic leadership in here? That's great that we have them in here. Who am I missing? Oh, and, and also we have people here from, from service organizations that provide value to higher education. So show your hands if you're providing value to higher education associations. Thank you very much. Okay. So let me read to you something, and some of you may have seen this before. Faculty and administrators in most universities come together daily to accomplish a variety of tasks. However, we do not often perceive ourselves to be collaborators. Frequently, we encounter each other as adversaries, bound to represent our distinctive groups and monitor the behavior of the other side. Thus, we focus on negotiating compromise rather than on collaborating to create the most effective solutions. This is Linda McMillan, former provost of Susquehanna University. And subsequent to that, this chart here talks about or conveys the leadership mindset we often give to the other side, whether it's true or not. The academy is collegial, fundamentally around the idea of being a colleague and the discussion is the point. As a matter of fact, there's not enough discussion. From the administration perspective, we have a managerial mindset, which is we want to get things done. As a matter of fact, there's too much conversation. And the trustees are directive. They're telling you guys and they're present what they have to do. A discipline focus, an institutional focus, and often, if it's a private institution, a corporate perspective. Micro, macro, and top down. But here's what's interesting. And this is where I think we have to all get better. The academy has power over cooperation. They don't have to co cooperate with their provost. They don't have to cooperate with their chairs. 
They do if they're influenced in the right way, but they have power over being engaged. You have to influence them. The administration has power over resources and trustees have power over leadership. So the game that's played, not everywhere, but many places, I'll give you cooperation if you give me resources and presidents, chancellors, keep the peace and keep us out of the chronicle, unless it's good news. <laughs> and when I show this, and we're gonna open this up now for the three of you, when I show this to people on the academic and administrative side, especially if they're new to higher ed, one of the things they say is, now I have a deeper appreciation for the constraints I'm living within. I had no idea why it's so hard, but it has been so hard since I got here. Does this resonate with you? Any of you? So this totally resonates for me. Um, I, and I saw this uh, last year with you, and I was like, oh, okay, now I get it, right? So the whole issue of the academy and the complexity of the academy and their ability to participate or not, right? So I give George Mason as a great example. We're growing incredibly quickly. So we're adding 1,000 new students a year. And so what we desperately need is a faculty buy-in and participation and engagement to serve ever more increasing numbers of students. And so um, the conversation has been is how do we get them to cooperate with that level of growth when obviously what they see is without the appropriate level of resources, what they're seeing is their teaching loads going up and, and the yeah. request to do more and more research. So this was incredibly powerful and, and actually I took it back to the institution and shared it, saying, look, this is how we view our world through this lens, and so how do we find ways to all be successful? What was your reaction from people seeing this? You know, I think it's a good framing, right? So well, no, for people On the academic like, side, yeah. right? Did they see it as, okay, this tells a story yeah. that helps me understand yes. about the late land. What about you, Bill? What do you see in your institution? Uh, I would agree completely. I think on the, uh, the academy or the academic side, um, we really can't get one voice. So mm -hmm. when we're working with the faculty, and you'll ask, you know, do you believe in that? You can buy in. Will the faculty go for it? Uh, there's nobody that will really step out as a leader of the faculty and speak for the faculty. So it's, it's a bunch of individuals, uh, and they really have to buy in as a, a whole group. And that's very difficult to do. Yes. Uh, so we really get, as uh, administration, we're kind of squeezed in the middle. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes they don't want to know what the entity is doing. They want to just continue to do what they do, and they do it very well. Uh, but it's a challenge to help them understand what the entity's situation is. That's great. Don? You know, when I look at this, the first time I've seen this, but when I look at this, my experience in a small private college is that this would change a little bit. I think you'd find that, that the academy would think that all the power resides in administration um, and that the academy's job is to speak truth to that power, right? Over decision-making, yeah. over resources, I think. At least that was my experience, that in a smaller school, and Bill, maybe you can speak to this, um, it's more an intimate setting. Um, people have direct access to presidents, right? Absolutely. Like yeah. sometimes I walk in the office, I'm like, you're kidding me, you're spending your time doing this, but that's, that's what the small college experience is like. My experience being at, on the other side of the spectrum, at California's largest private university now, is that this is probably more representative mm. of, and, and mm. as JJ said, a better, a better framework. But, but my struggle when I was at CalArts was that I, was, I really felt like I was in a position with all the power and that it was a constant sort of the speaking truth to power. And that could be just the power. That just could be sort of the, 
the uh, the art faculty in the world. If there's you know anybody that knows art faculty, it's it's. Are there any art specific. faculty in the room? Yeah. Yeah. I, I wish there were because it would be a lively discussion. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that was that's but that's yeah. my reaction to it. So. But each one of you, uh, it, well, in your, two of your case, I know you're on the cabinet, and you are playing a role in a big institution in an important role in the Treasury Office and overseeing that group. Um, but you, the influence is to the people that are your peers, right? right. In their case, it's the chief ac academic officer or provost. Right. To be able to build that relationship. How many of you are chief business officers out here or, or financial vice presidents? So ultimately, your liaison to the faculty and to the mm -hmm. schools is through the chief academic officer. Mm -hmm. How are you building relationships? Or have you had challenges? Because that's more interesting. It's great, whenever I'm in, in a, uh, listen to a talk where two people have a great relationship, the audience is sitting there with envy, right? right? But how we build that relationship is really what's interesting and important. So have you had challenges in building relationship with chief academic officers? And what have you done to, to actually produce a partnership or move in that direction? Any one of you. Well, I'll, for my, when I was at, at CalArts, the provost and I were, uh, were best buddies, um, really. I mean, our offices were right next to each other, proximity And how long has, did that take? That didn't take very long because we both started right at the same time, okay. both brand new. So we were very lucky in that regard. There wasn't, a, neither one of us came in with a lot of institutional baggage. Um, we gained that baggage over time. Um, <laughs> but we came in with sort of a tabula rasa. And, right. uh, and so we, we leaned on each other. Right? It's like, hey, how are yeah. you getting, like, simple things like, did you get your ID and what do you do when you go to the canteen? And all the way stuff from that, it's like, from, did you talk to the board chair? Did he, what's it going right. on? Or the president's here? So we were very fortunate in that regard. And, and, and we were both tasked right from the beginning of, of coming up with a strategic plan for the institution, which, you know, in retrospect, is mm. a little mind boggling to mm. the, the two newest people to an institution tasked with with sort of mapping out the, the future of the institution. Right. Um, and, and so it was a real bonding experience we had there. So my experience at, at CalArts working with the provost was actually quite good. And we became really close and we're still good friends to this day, even though neither one of us, I think Janine's actually stepped down to faculty, but um, still have a great relationship. But what about day. now? Because you also, you have a perspective. Yeah, so, so now as, it's... Because you know what it is to be at the top, and yeah. now you're, you're in a position to influence more people at the top. Yeah, so that's been, that's been an interesting transition for me. I'm, I'm lucky in, in that... Uh, USC, maybe like a lot of institutions here, is sort of a federated model, right? Each school is a tub with its own, on its own bottom. We've got a health system. Fortunate in that Treasury is the one function across the university that's actually centralized, right? So we manage the money uh, for the health system as well as the university for all the schools. Everything kind of comes through us, um, both in terms of cash, short-term investments, all, mm. all sort of the cash business. So. That gives us an interesting perspective. Sure. So for me, it's really been, and I've only been there for about a year now, but, but building those relationships across the university, you're in a unique position when you're centralized because you can start to make connections that otherwise people don't really see, right? Mm -hmm. So I work a lot with the provost's um, sort of chief administrative Absolutely. and business officer. Right. And, and I'm always saying to Mark, I'm like, Mark, you know, at the health system, you know, Tom and his team, he's like, really, we had no idea, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, how do you figure not only adding value on the business side, but also connecting dots maybe that other people don't see because Beautiful. you have a unique, you have a unique, a unique advantage. Have, yeah, please. Yeah. All right, so I am um, at University of Delaware. I went through four provosts in five years. 
Ooh. So I would say, um, right? It was the most fun you'll ever have. You just don't know it. Um, so I would say what that was, um, and and three of them became university presidents. So it wasn't a negative. In fact, it was it was very much a, a sort of a stopping point along the journey for people who wanted to become university presidents. But it was a very different dynamic because just as I had sort of gotten to know them, they were leaving. And then you were onboarding a new, uh, a new provost. So what I would say there is it's, um, um, it's all about relationship building. It's understanding what the provost or the president, because he's been through four presidents in five years. Yeah, so he's right. got the better story. <laughs> yeah. And um, three provosts. And three provosts, <laughs> right. So I think it's really about uh, understanding the individual, um, what, they're, uh, what they're being tasked to do, sort of who they are, how they like to work, and then trying to form a strong partnership. And again, for me, at the University of Delaware, it was a lot about, okay, you have really short-term milestones or things you want to accomplish, um, because most of them were pretty direct that they weren't going to be there for the long term. That's great. Hmm. Bill, any, anything to add to this? You know, I think um, it's all about relationships uh, and how do you help? How do you help them do a great job? Yep. You know, in, in my role as the, uh, the CFO, I, I don't, I, I'm a support. So uh, our provost has to lead the faculty, and I, I really just say, how can I help? Right. So, well, it's not trivial that you, from the top, are letting people know through your organization, we are support, as opposed to we're the center of the universe. Absolutely. Right? We because are support. We are support. And that's a message that that's a great thing to be reminded for all of us, that from the top, we have to remind people what that means, that we're here in support of the mission. Um, and I think there is, uh, historically, um, a lot of denigration on the administrative side towards academics. People talk behind closed doors about their frustrations with academics, and, ac and the academy does the same thing back. So this is a way, like, who's going to extend the olive, the olive branch? And part of this is being willing to say, we are here to support you. How can we support you? Yeah. Uh, it's all about faculty. They are the institution. They are the life's blood. So yeah. They're the brand. So we need to make sure that we're supporting them. We need to make sure we're understanding the strategic plan. That's great. Uh, which is critical. So, so let's open this up. Anyone at the moment, we, we got other things we can talk about, but that, does that, anything that's top of mind for people you'd like to ask anyone up here? Show and Just raise your hand and we'll throw you a mic. Over here. Do we have a mic or should, are we doing mics? Okay, great. I think Mike is coming over. Actually, introduce yourself and where you're from. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Aisha Merchant at CalArts. I was the lucky one who filled Don's shoes once he left. <laughs> uh, so I'm new to higher ed, relatively new. And one of the things that really frustrated me was how long it takes to make a decision. And so I'm curious from the panel, how do you sort of get to you know, start to outline decision rights, start to get people to make decisions and move things mm. forward. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, listen, right. my perspective is however fast it is is not fast enough. But it, it, and I don't mean mm. that we want to bypass the academy, but we got to find a way to distinguish between decisions that need to be made uh, more efficiently and others that can warrant more dialogue. Yeah. And I don't think we do that. I think we just come with this attitude like we need it to happen faster and, and in fact there are some things that you could really say, you know what, let's really work together and think this through over time. So how would you answer this question? 
in terms of building more capacity and efficiency in decision making? I, I, you know, I have to, I actually have to take the side of the academy on this one. Right. I, I think administration does a really poor job in higher education of communicating. And across a lot of different areas, but I think we have a real problem in communicating sort of what the macro environment is um, to our constituents, right, to our shareholders, to our colleagues on the academic side. I think um, we don't spend enough time talking about our own specific situation inside of that macro context in a way that people understand. I don't think, and this has just been my experience, so I don't mean to speak for everybody, but I don't think we spend enough time listening and appreciating the history of some decision-making um, that's happened at the institutions. Whether we like it or not, we take those decisions on as the current administrators, and we need to appreciate that, we need to honor that. Um, so I don't think we, do, we spend enough time there. Um, and I don't think we, we create enough um, opportunity for conversations to be had. We sort of have these committee structures, at least that's been my experience, where you have the benefits committee and the benefits committee meets and really just have a bunch of self-interested people that are interested in their own benefits on the committee and they're voting yes or no based on their own specific situations. Well, you know, let's spend some time thinking about these committee structures and maybe that's not the right governance system. Maybe there's something else. Maybe there's a d different way to engage the community. So I think there's a real opportunity that we have in front of us, given some of the headwinds that we have across the industry, to think about how we talk and listen to one another. JJ Bill? Yeah, so I would just say I do think it comes down to communication. I think my experience with faculty is they're well-intentioned. Um, they're going to typically be at the institution for a long time, and they don't understand the why. Right, yeah. so it is. It mm -hmm. does go back to communication yeah. often. So, why does this need to happen, or why, why, why do we need to do this? And if you can get to the why, and you can sort of listen to what the faculty's pain pain points are, because all faculty members have pain points, travel system, uh, you know, the the steps to get reimbursements, whatever it is, and and you can implement things that um, that uh, reduce their friction point. Then I think you get that sort of. Um, the we, the team, approach to the issues. And, and um, I spend a lot of my time at the university as well as my team with sort of why. Well, you know, what's, what's the state of the university? And if we're implementing change, why? And what does it mean to you? Right? I've often found um, uh, early on in our tenure at Mason, we were really good at saying why at the macro level? Like why are we putting in a new centralized graduate admissions program? Why? Because decentralized means some students here in two weeks and other students here in six months. That doesn't work. But what we struggle with in the beginning is what does that mean to you as an individual faculty member or department chair in terms of the process? So I think a lot of it is, is communicating, and it's the, it really is the time to listen, to understand what right. faculty. But here's the problem. Mm -hmm. um, Bill, you can add to this. I think, I think absolutely it starts with why. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean they're going to like it. And I think right. what right. we do is we think that we have to go from the why has to produce them liking it. And this is the breakdown because the, the, the interpretation is, oh, if I communicate the why, they're going to understand it and then they're going to agree. They may never agree with it. And it seems to me the dilemma is we get stopped by having to over convince the masses, when in fact we're never going to convince everybody. So Bill, how do you deal with that? I, I think you're right on point because I think people don't want to listen a lot of times. And I think 
coming from the corporate environment, uh, you know, the, the C-suite communicates and people understand right. and follow. Whereas in, in higher ed, people wait for the president to say something, at least right. in a small institution. Mm -hmm. And we really don't have the, the various channels of communication where you're carrying forward that message and, and reinforcing that message. I know several times where we've talked to somebody and you explain it five times and they ask a question the sixth time, that's thinking right. that the answer is going to change. So, so that's where the boldness comes in. Yeah. Yeah. We're moving forward even though, and we've, we've, we've explained it, do you get it? And we're still moving forward right. and having the courage to do that. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's, it's all down to trust. Yeah, and you're not yeah. looking for you're not looking. I always said you're not. We're not looking for unanimity. We're just looking for general consensus. That's right. Right. We're, I'm not trying to convince everybody. And in terms of getting stuff done, like you find those 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 couple advocates or partners on the yeah. academic side, you really that goes back to the yeah. You, you latch on to them, and Champions. that's going to be your change agent on the faculty yeah, side. Because, because you're going to have to spend time talking to people that are going to hate you no matter what. Right? Yeah. I mean, especially as a CFO, well, you're the you. one with the money, right? They don't yeah. hate me. Yeah. No, they love you, but they you're hate the me. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, my experience of the role of a CBO is that you live in this tension between having to get through the next budget cycle and the long-term planning, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at this short-term, long-term, you know, this visual up here is a representation of the pie, and it could be different for each one of you. And we spend our time trying to think, figure out over the next budget cycle how we're going to cut and how we're going to grow. Now, that tree is interesting for me because my, I'm, I'm saying more and more these days that we got to get out of the mindset of seeing the results but recognizing that we're planting seeds. Hmm. And if you're a leader, your job is not to see the result necessarily. It's to recognize that what you're gonna do is plant the seeds for the next leader. And I don't think we behave like that. And I understand why. There's so much that has to get done. I also think that business offers don't, don't let go enough. They, don't, they do not let go enough to allow their people to do what they have to do and make mistakes. And as a result, they don't have their head up and out. They have their head in the weeds or making sure it is done correctly. And I understand why, but the dilemma there is nobody's really looking up and out. Right? The, we think the president and the chancellor is, but they got other concerns. And I think that this industry has, uh, this particular industry of business officers has such a unique opportunity to think about themselves as planting seeds. And I've said this a few times and people say, I see that. What do you think of that? I think people are very adverse to taking risk Yeah. in the higher ed space. Um, I think, or understanding it. Or, well, right? just even taking risk. Yeah. You know, they're not willing to take that. They're not willing to fail because they don't know what the ramifications are. Yeah. So in, in a small institution, you have to take, take risks. What's and, an example of a risk you've taken? Oh, you can start up a new program. Um, you know, how much money do you invest in a new program before you see that return on investment? Right. Um, but saying yes versus we don't have enough money. See, I know, I know business officers who actually have a completely opposite, very few, but I know one in particular who has a completely different mindset, which is, I don't understand why we're saying no. If you can make a case for it, let's do it. And actually, Absolutely. and their peers are like, you know what, I need to learn how to better say no. And that's not, that to me is what yeah. a, a, a different kind of business officer, mm -hmm. to be looking for how to say yes more often. What I try to do is I, I try to find out what are we promoting? What can actually hit the market? Exactly. And uh, 
prior to, to my getting there, the, the president was there for a, a while and everything was cut, cut, cut. And I said, you can't cut yourself to success. So what we need to do is find those things for growth and plant that seed. And you have to understand how long you're willing to take that risk. Yeah. And you have to be able to measure that risk. How much does it cost to do something? Exactly. You can't go in with your eyes closed. You've got to be able to say, I'm willing to risk this amount for this amount of time. Great. So, did you do anything? No. Okay, okay good. Well, you know, oh, I, will, I want to say one thing about that because this is one area. It just reminded me when you're talking about plans. One of the areas, I think, in higher ed where we could make a lot of, we could focus, and I think it would, it would actually have an, a real ROI, like on the investment, is how we think about succession planning. Right? Hmm. Like how we think about it in our own teams, in our own positions, in our own institutions. I mean, it seems like a, a lot of the time we're sort of caught flat-footed with uh, retirement, sudden retirement, if somebody gets a new job or whatever it is. And I think it would I think it'd be really interesting for us as sort of finance leaders to, to sort of think about that succession planning a bit more strategically than mm. we have in the past. And it might address some of these sort nice. of change issues, right? And how do you deal with your team and what's the next step? So anyways, I just wanted to mention that. Nice. One of the areas that I have been working in and exploring, and we're gonna talk about more, is mood. And mood is fascinating. If you look up here, there's all kinds of moods up there. And this is different from uh, feelings, but all they can be similar. And the reason I'm pointing this out is we have these conversations all the time about the mood of our campus, the mood of our country, the mood of our teams. But we often don't take the time to explore what that looks like. And what I'm going to suggest to you is that, and, and there's things you can do to cultivate mood, and I've been in this journey for the last five years, and I can tell you with, with work, you can cultivate mood in a way that you probably don't think is even possible, which is fundamentally not waiting for the circumstances to change to move from frustration to serenity or to move from overwhelm to patience. But most of us, including myself, find ourselves in a mood and then we're stuck in that mood, especially if it's negative. And the reason this is important is that if you're leading a team, you're fundamentally orchestrating mood. The last two keynotes, yesterday's Matthew uh, Lund keynote, the guy from Pixar, and today, what's his, how do you pronounce his name today? I, I just meant, wow. he created a mood, right? And all kinds of moods that we had a, as a group. And mood opens possibilities for ourselves and others or closes. Now, if we look up here, and then I'm gonna turn a question, we find ourselves in these moods, we fall into these moods, moods are in the background. And I'm gonna suggest to you that part of the work as a leader is one, we have to develop awareness, recognize the moods we find ourselves in. Number two, explore with curiosity. Look at the curiosity up there. Could you imagine bringing fascination or curiosity to that mood? I'm telling you what's possible. And then ultimately, if the mood's closing possibilities, cultivating a different mood, and then most importantly as a leader, what mood are you looking to produce on your team? because this is always in flux. So my question for the three of you is how are you navigating this conversation on your teams? Do you see relevance about orchestrating mood to be able to get your teams and yourself to where you need to get to? I believe that ultimately what I am trying to do with my teams, my divisions, my institutions, is to connect people with purpose, right? So to do that, 
there's a lot of different tactics you can do, right? But in, in my experience, um, what's been really effective, and I, if I see these words up here you have that are describing mood, yeah. we could just as easily change out mood for culture. And instead of these sort of descriptors here, we could actually have values, right? What are the set of values that define and undergird your culture? And I think as leaders, you know, that's part of our challenge is how are we connecting our teams and our institutions to purpose, which we touched on a little bit in the opening, right? Um, you know, what's that tension like between the act? We're in a support role. But just because I'm in a support role doesn't mean that I can't connect with that purpose, right? right? right. If I'm doing finance nice. and budget, you know, if I'm saving the institution or doing procurement and I'm saving the institution $100,000, that's three full-ride scholarships that will change somebody's life. Right? How do you get, how do you make those connections to to purpose? And then how do you figure out what the values are? Right? We all sort of inherit institutional values, but as leaders, our own personal values, right? If they're in alignment with the institution, great. But we bring our own personal values to work every day, and our teams feed off those values. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So when I think about this this question, Howard, I immediately think about how am I connecting. Uh, my teams to their purpose, and how am I bringing my full self and set of values to my team and my institution? And you can see just the way he's leaning in. Yeah, I, and, I mean, just like this, <laughs> like it's getting really charged. <laughs> I mean, the numbers, you know, the mechanics is secondary. Yes, this is what you care about, and yes. I think this is what this is fundamentally where we all need to go. It's the people conversation. Yeah. What about you, Bill? How does this resonate with you? I, I think a lot. I mean. Uh, I care. I, I love what I do. Yeah. And I think you have to love what you do because you can make a difference for people. And uh, when I work with my staff, I try to figure out what's their strengths and weaknesses and, and try to build them confidence around all of that. Yes. Uh, I do think that uh, people have uh, a lack of, of understanding of what they can and can't do. Yeah. So you really have to empower them and say, well, you know, okay, you made a mistake. I make them every day. Yeah. So uh, you just got to give them the power to, to uh, do great things. Um, and lead by example. You got to lead by example, right. absolutely. And you got to come in with a good mood. You cannot be in a bad mood. Close your door. Don't, don't show your bad mood to anybody else. I think that there's an element that you can't avoid finding yourself in mood. The question is, what do you do if it's closing possibilities? Your point is, if I show up in a bad mood around my people, it's going to affect them in the wrong way. It's contagious. But if they, if they also see, the alternative is that they see that you can change your mood. It's like, wow, because that's what we all have to learn is how can we shift our moods if we find ourselves the world's closing down around us. What about you, JJ? So I would just add three things. I mean, I always say there's no I in team, right? So um, while the administrative side is in service, we're interdependent in, in solving the issues, right? So the faculty need resources or the faculty need um, better classrooms. We're here, you know, in service, but it's a collective uh, we to get it done. I think the other thing is um, by the time issues get to my senior leaders, it's pretty gummed up. And I think owning that and saying, you know, it, these jobs are hard, they're fun, but they're hard. And so, um, you know, recognizing um, when the issues come, it sometimes takes what I call unpacking and a lot of listening to try to figure out what the solutions are. And so I think it's just, it's, it's helpful to let people know that, you know, we're being, you're being asked, we're being asked to do really fun, but really 
tough jobs at, at, at like a, a neck break pace some days. And so, you know, owning that and being real about it, yeah. but also saying, let's get everyone in the room that, you know, is involved and to try to sort it out quickly and efficiently. And we got to be willing. It's interesting because your bill point, Bill, you said, you know, I love what I do. Well, not everybody that works for you love what they do. Right. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and, and you might not love what you do. And I would say that we need to find a way to honor people who don't love what they do and help them find what they do love right. what they do. I think we spend too much time keeping people around who the best thing to do would be to help them figure out what they right. and, and have those tough conversations. Yeah. Right? I think I just want to comment on one thing that JJ said about the being real, because I think that's a, an important thing to just to emphasize is that to find the people, to help the people that may not be in the position, there needs to be an element of vulnerability and authenticity that you're bringing to your role, right? You, and so when Bill says, you know, you don't want to show him a bad mood, I'm like, yeah, you don't. You want to be stoic as a leader, but you also do want to show some vulnerability and some authenticity. I mean, at the end of the day, I spend more time with my team than I do my family. Really, oh, sort of fun. Yeah. And so if I can't show that part of myself, how can I expect them right. to bring that part yeah, of themselves to work, yeah. right? And maybe, they, maybe in that exchange, there's a possibility to repurpose yeah. or reconstitute how you're doing your business so that everybody can yeah. be empowered to thrive. Yeah. I thought can that was a good point. Yeah, order. can I draft into, I mean, I do think you need to be real. I'll give the example earlier last week, I guess, because my days are all blurring, but you know, my daughter was in a car wreck and Mason police showed up first. And I can't fake that, right? Yeah. Like, you know, police officers like, it's your daughter in that accident. I, I mean, you have to be real, right? People see you as you're walking through the hallway and you're upset and, you know, they don't know why you're upset, but you have to take 30 seconds and at least say, it's not you, it's me, <laughs> yeah. it's my daughter, yeah. it's the car wreck, I'll be back, right? right. But I mean, I do think there is a, a level of, you know, being calm, and, and you know, helping people see the way through the tough issues, but I, I do believe um, you have to be authentic. And you know, I'm I'm not the the low key, non emotional person. You know, I'm I, I'm a pretty high energy. You drink coffee? I do drink coffee, and I'm a runner, and I love people, and I get energy from people. So I'm like sucking all your energy right now. I'm going to be on, not be able to sleep all night. But um, but uh, you know, I do I do think you need to bring your best self to it, and and yeah. just be. And authentic. I think, by the way, that's what I heard you say: <laughs> is that you wake up every morning and say, "How do I bring my best self?" Yeah, it's that, game on. Right. Yeah, really is. But that's the one great. thing we don't say is care. We've got to care. See, that's you got to center. care about every single one of your employees. See, showing care. That you know, I'm so glad you brought that language in here. This that's the centerpiece. Is is the actions you're taking showing care? And if we can remind ourselves, then we can orient ourselves. What's yeah. the right way to show up around that yeah. person? The willingness to uncover and discuss the brutal facts and having a vision. And I've seen lots of leaders do one or the other well, you got to do both well. Mm -hmm. So what's one example in, in the three of your lives, in your work, where you have been able and willing to communicate a brutal fact and still move things forward because you had a vision? Do you have any examples of that? It doesn't have to be all three of you, but I think this is something that's unique in being able to do both well. I, I think I can speak for... Uh, yeah. Well, going through uh, four presidents in five years. Um, <laughs> but, what you have, <laughs> but, but what you have to do is, is uh, you have to say uh, what the brutal facts are. Yeah. But you have to say, okay, here's how we're going to handle it. That's right. It's the calming influence. You know, the sky is not falling. I kid my staff because I said there's nobody bleeding. 
you know? Mm. There's no broken bones, right. you know? So uh, it's okay. Let's have a perspective. People don't die from accounting mistakes. You know? That's right. For the most part. Yeah. But, uh, you know, a calming influence when you look at the brutal facts and you understand what you need to do yeah. and then just execute. But I think there's a lot of reluctance to speak the brutal facts. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with fear, right? So my example is when I was at CalArts, we went through a unionization effort. And, uh, mm. and we had a president who, quite honestly, didn't want to engage with it. We had a provost who'd gone through one and had such a bad experience mm. that she wasn't willing to put herself out there. So it's left to the third man in charge, the third woman in charge, it just happened to be me. And so some of it has to do with recognizing, right, in yourself, like, there's some fear there. To your point earlier, like, the risk, right? Mm -hmm. You're taking your risk. But as leaders, that's what we're doing, right? Um, sometimes you're being bold in ways that you didn't know you needed to be or you had to be. Yeah. Um, so there's those elements to it as, as well. I mean, it can be... You are taking a risk by speaking up. Because without a doubt, I, I laid out the whole, and it was from a Absolutely. CFO's perspective about unionization. So it wasn't about sort of, you know, sort of the academic theoretical sort of neoliberal ideas about the worker and, and the institution and the person and the agent. It was, this is what it's going to mean to you, yeah. right? This is what it's going to... And, and those but are hard. But it's treating people like adults, though. See, when we don't share the brutal facts, we treat people like, like they can't handle it. And in, this, in the end, they, they, they walk around feeling like we're hiding stuff from them. And we have them. Yeah. We went through a... Uh, tough transition with one of our presidential transitions. And what I did is I just said our risk assessment. What are the risks we need to avoid? Mm. And, uh, you know, high, medium, and low. And educate the board on that. Right. And say, as the operator of the institution, these are the things we need to stay focused in on. So right. I thought that was very helpful going through the risk assessment. And everybody was on board. You know, the, the board was asking mm. some questions about it. And then, uh, you know, they basically said, thank you for talking about these high-risk areas and how are we managing through them. But they need to be on board with all those risks in a transition. Yeah. Beautiful. That's right. I was mentioning a second ago about brand. This is what our most of our mission statements <laughs> look like. <laughs> and what's fascinating is, is that, you know, we talk about creating our new mission, mm -hmm. right? And, and, it, and if you compare your mission to another mm -hmm. institution, it's, it's, you know, your eyes can glaze over. Yeah. How do you make this conversation real in terms of, What's our mission? Is there, is there anything that you've done that has uh, produced a different kind of energy mm -hmm. around something that is often just rewriting the words and coming up with a clever way of saying it? Yeah. Can I jump in? So um, uh, my president, Angel Cabrera, did a 10-year strategic plan. And what we uncovered in the beginning part of that strategic plan is that we have no disparity in outcomes. So no matter your economic racial, gender, first-gen, non-first-generation, our students show no disparity in educational outcomes. And that was, um, it took us like two years to figure it out, and we had people come in and validate it. And that really is the sort of, um, what we've defined as sort of the Mason magic, but it's also become this um, incredible um, uh, northern star, right? People can align mm. to that. So how do we maintain these great outcomes for our students? Nice. It's simple, mm -hmm. it's memorable, mm -hmm. and that's what often a mission statement loses. We have a mission statement very much like that, but uh, we boiled it down to a tagline, relentless pursuit of student success. Mm. Yeah. You know? yeah. So we have the mission statement, has all the buzzwords and everything else, but it's all about the student. And if right. you can't take everything you do and turn it back to how you're helping the students, you know, why are you doing it? Right, and have a key message that you can spread across the institution. Yeah. yeah. That's great.
That's, that's a difficult thing to do. I had to do one with the provost, and it just gets butchered because there's too many voices. Exactly. Right? You got to take every. Yeah. It's like there's. Now at USC, our provost Michael Quick. I think it was funny. I was talking to him the other day. He's like, he's like, did you just finish the strategic plan? He's like, yeah. He's like, I was on version 39, and uh, I threw it all away, and I started and I wrote it in one night, and gave it to the board, and. It was really simple. I mean, the mission statement still had the yeah. sort of death by a thousand voices yeah. in it, but it was really easy to glean a, a, a tagline, as you yeah. guys mentioned, and ours is changing lives through teaching, research, and discovery. Yeah. And that purpose, if you can, and, the, and you, no matter how bad your mission statement is, because we all have bad ones, you can, you can pull something out for your teams, yeah. your divisions. And then the question for your teams are, so how are we right. in service of that yes. tagline, exactly. right? And not get lost in all the words. Yeah. So one of the areas that uh, I want to explore with you, we did talk a little bit about this, is what is it to be a beginner? It's interesting, uh, being a beginner. Uh, how many of you are, are beginner at something? Raise your hand. You're a beginner at something. You know, shout out what you're a beginner at. Bridge. Bridge. <laughs> Something else. Swimming. Swimming. Nine times out of ten when I ask this question, people give me a personal example, right? Because the last thing we want to admit is that we're not an expert at what we do at work. And what's fascinating about this is we all have people that work for us who are deathly afraid of revealing that they don't know because they don't want to be found out. And, I, and I'll tell you, this is like all of our careers come, become over time this like hope they don't find out a certain thing. In many ways, we're faking it till we make it. And we know this. We know that we have more experience. So being a beginner is a really interesting way to start thinking about how do I progress where I need to go? And on our most recent podcast, this individual who teaches at the Naval Academy uh, brought his students together, and this is Peter Denning, and he asked them about how many of you like being experts, and they all raised their hands. Of the 34, 32 raised their hands. How many of you like being beginners? Two people raised their hands. And they had just failed an operating system class test. He went home, he meditated, and he wrote the Beginner's Creed. So what I'm gonna ask of somebody out here and I, and I want somebody just, you know, and this is going to take some courage, is to come up here and be willing just to read this to our panel. And then I'm just going to get your reaction, and then we're going to end with this. But this is a very cathartic and I think important thing for us, as well as generations that we're supporting going forward. So who would be willing in the audience here to come up here and read this? You will do us a great service. Thank you. Come on up. Yeah. What's your first name again? Tokumbo, nice to meet you. So here's what I'd like you to do. I want you to think of this, these three as your children, okay? Do you have kids? Wow. I do. All right, excellent. So I want you to be slow. A little younger? He <laughs> <laughs> must be talking about you. That would have been weird. <laughs> so what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to read this, and read this with a pacing where you let yourself really hear the words. Don't just read it, just, just read it. Uh, and I want you all to re read along with Takumbo in a way that you really take this in. Because I think this is a really important thing for all of us, and then you're going to react to this, okay? Okay. All right, you ready? I am a beginner. I'm entering a new game about which I know nothing. I do not yet know how to move in this game. 
I see many other people playing in this game now. This game has gone on for many years prior to my arrival. I am a new recruit arriving here for the first time. I see value to me in, to, in learning to navigate in this domain. There is much for me to learn. The basic terminology, the basic rules, the basic moves of action, the basic strategies. While I'm learning these things, I may feel various negative reactions. Overwhelmed at how much there is to learn. Insecure that I don't know what to do. Inadequate that I lack the capacity to do this. Frustrated and discouraged that my progress is so slow. Angry that I've been given insufficient guidance. Anxious that I will never perform up to my expectations on which my career depends. Embarrassed that everyone see, can see my mistakes. But these moods are part of being a beginner. It does not serve my goal and ambition to dwell on, in them. Instead, if I make a mistake, I will ask, what lesson does this teach? If I make a discovery, I will celebrate my aha moment. If I feel alone, I will remember that I have many friends ready to help. If I'm stuck, I will ask for help from my teachers. Over time, I will make fewer mistakes. I will gain confidence in my abilities. I will gain familiarity with the game. I will be able to have intelligent conversations with others in the game. I will not cause breakdowns for promises that I lack the confidence to keep. I have an ambition to become competent, perhaps even proficient or, or expert in this game. But for now, I'm a beginner. Keep the mic, keep the mic. So before I ask them, what do you, what do you take from this? Use the mic. No, I mean, I mean it's, it's very much, I have young children. It's very much the kind of patience we have for them. Mm. Like they're actually learning, like my, they're learning chess at four and six. And so it's, there's a lot of very- Share this with this group too. This is a, they're learning chess and they obviously there's a lot of very obvious things or even just like when they started learning tic-tac-toe and it's like how can you not get tic-tac-toe but if you've never played before it's not yeah. so obvious um, and so I don't know, to me it's one of the things I like about having children is that we I have almost infinite patience with them not always not infinite but, <laughs> uh, but I, I find I don't have the same patience with myself with my wife, with my colleagues, and it's actually good to remember that we are, to this point, we're all beginners in certain games, and the same thing that I, that, that I say to them, which is, yeah, at the beginning, it's always confusing. There's always things that when you yeah. first do them, they're, they're impossible, and then later on, they become obvious, Yeah. but it's kind of good to remind yourself of that, that, you know, it's something that seems obvious is not obvious to somebody else. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you very much. Let's give them a round. You know, so one of the things I'll tell you, and I want to get your three reactions before we do a close. Uh, Peter Denning told his students, graduate students, every week, for two weeks, I want you to read this to yourself. After the second week, every single one of the students came back and found themselves able to engage in something that in the past they felt in, like they couldn't remain in an okay mood. And, and just reading this and starting to absorb this allowed them to show up differently so that they could be a more accelerated learner. So this, this is an important area that, that I think we need to really keep investigating because I think there's a lot of lack of self-compassion. And, and there's a lot of hiding that we want people to know what we don't know. What do the three of you take away from this? 
Don. I mean, I'm, this is another thing I love. Um, <laughs> I really do. So I don't want to get the budget request from you all, but when you go back to the institutions, I firmly believe that one of the things that higher education is not doing, and they can take a cue from the corporate side, this is what it reminds me of the private sector, if you are in a leadership position and you do not have a coach, like a mm. professional coach that you're meeting with on a regular basis to help you navigate mm -hmm. these issues with your institution, your team, you are doing yourself a disservice. Like I said, I don't want to get the budget request, <laughs> but you should go back to your institutions and make this a requirement of your employment. This is one area where we are being tasked, right, as leaders to do all of this work, to have these teams, but we're not provided with the tools, right, to help make that happen. When I'm listening to Takumba say that, I'm like, yeah, I, maybe I have a place to start, but I need someone to help me, help me introspectively understand where I may be falling short, and also help me understand where I could be more of service. Because at the end of the day, if I'm not supporting my team members and my employees, I'm not doing my job. And it also reminds me, so the coaching is one part, and also, for me, relates back to purpose. When we were talking about purpose, I mean, this is a key place to, to make that connection between the learning process and purpose, right? And to understand that we need to be investing as much, and not going to a webinar or going to a conference, but really providing thoughtful, consistent learning opportunities for our teams to where they can start to engage in these questions and feel empowered enough to bring their full selves to work to say, you know what, Bill, I don't get this. And that's okay, right? Because Bill, Bill I don't make mistakes every day, I don't know either. Let's yeah. go find out. Beautiful. Right, so that's Thank you, how we That's beautiful. Bill, I guess I can really relate to this because uh, this is my first job in higher ed. So, uh, when I was uh, interviewing, the chairman of the board said, uh, how do you overcome the perceived weakness of not being in higher ed? And I said, I, I don't see that as a perceived weakness mm -hmm. because I see it as a perceived strength because I'm going to do all the work that I need to do to be successful. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. I can really uh, relate to that. Um, and, uh, you know, to learn higher ed, uh, not growing up in the industry, uh, I've really relied upon my corporate existence and, and I still use the corporate words. You know, and I say right. we need business models. And, you know, the faculty right. says, "What's that?" <laughs> so, um, you know, I'll always have that language. But uh, you know, I, I really believe that you have to show your vulnerability uh, when you're learning. Uh, I can go to my colleagues and say, "How do you think I did in that conversation?" Um, and they'll say, "Ah, oh, you, you shouldn't use that language." So we we have good relationships where we help each other, and and we get down to the vulnerable level so that we can build each other up. Beautiful. Yeah, Thank really you. JJ, what's your takeaway on this? Yeah, so this um, sort of focuses me on mindful leadership, right? I mean, we are entrusted to do really amazing jobs, and with that comes an enormous sense of responsibility. And I think all of you, like me, um, you know, uh, we're typically type A, you know, overachievers, right? And so we don't often cut ourselves any slack. And so I think this is helpful in terms of mindful leadership. and you know, um, being reflective and, and also being, conti you know, uh, continual learners. Like, I, I, I'm not perfect, I make mistakes, um, but I always uh, try to learn from that and then, and then continue, continue to build from that. It's beautiful. So.
So what's going to happen now is that, just to show you sort of the montage, you know, these are the areas that we covered today. We covered about shared governance and how to break down the silos. We talked about short-term, long-term, mood. Uh, we talked about this idea of the brutal facts and a vision, a little bit about branding and then the beginner's creed. So I want to give you guys just a chance just to say any final things you'd like to share with people out here, and then we will wrap up. I'll go first. Okay. So um, have fun. Um, this is a great group of dedicated professionals in one of the best industries in the world. And so learn from each other. Get everybody on speed dial because you will have an institutional crisis sometime in your uh, career. And it's always good to have great people that, around you when you have those issues. That's great. Bill, what, are you, what did you take away from this conversation? Um, you know, I think higher ed is, is so unique because it has an organization like this where everybody can get together. There's very few industries where you get together with everybody because it's so, particularly in the corporate world, you're not even allowed to be in the same room in some instances. <laughs> so the fact that you can learn from each other and build upon that is a wonderful opportunity and the collaboration. Uh, I know what things I'm working on, somebody else has already solved. Mm -hmm. So trying to figure out you know, you know, who the connection is to the person that solved that problem and, and building upon that wisdom is great. Beautiful. What I really appreciate about these groups is the opportunity to talk about not just uh, capital planning and short-term investments and how you get from A to B out of a budget, but what I believe to be really the, the open field or the blue ocean opportunity in higher ed, which is to focus on the things that we were talking about tonight, what leadership means, how you connect your teams to purpose, how you identify the set of values that make sense to you and your team, and how you live those with integrity. Um, like I said, I think there's a lot of headwinds in higher education. Uh, my institution in particular is going through a really rough time right now with, with some, with some uh, issues that are really representative of what's going on in the larger society. And I think if we don't spend time um, thinking about ourselves in really deep, meaningful ways and what that means when we bring ourselves to our institution, our teams, um, I, that gives me the worry. I don't worry about the business model adapting over time or the research dollars as much as I worry about these really um, important issues about leadership and values. Beautiful. So Don, Bill, JG, let's thank them for the wonderful <laughs>